Well, just before the break, we were taking a listen to some of that news conference that was Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer explaining the findings of that report, taking a look at social services, the social service networks, in particular in the city of Vancouver, focusing on the downtown east side. But a lot of questions about how the figure $5 billion a year came about. He talked about the fact that there is a lack of coordination when it comes to services on the downtown east side, saying that many groups are operating in silos and there needs to be more coordination to help people find solutions. Well, joining us now is Janice Abbott, who is the CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society. Janice, thank you so much for taking some time with us this, uh, this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm not sure if you uh, got to see or listen to some of the comments uh, from the news conference, but I know you're familiar with this report. How do you respond to police saying that these billions of dollars are going into these services and that there's a lack of communication, a lack of transparency, and that groups like yours and others are working in these silos? So I think that that there's, you know, an element of of accuracy in that what's really hard to um to fathom is um is how they've uh how the vpd has um chosen to make its case so i mean i think anybody um anybody uh with eyes can sort of stick their neck up and look around and see that we have we have problems that aren't being solved currently Um, But this is just a curious way to address it. In that hiring uh, the firm, the the tech firm, uh, to go ahead, and I think he he said that they've been working on this for about 14 months, uh, gathering this information? Yeah, that's what I've heard too. I didn't actually get a chance to listen to the conference. I am away, um, but I've I've heard, and I I think I heard them mention that they've been consulting with folks. I don't know anyone they've consulted with. So that's news to me. Um, and some of the, the numbers um, with respect to the nonprofits that have been identified are, are so um, out of whack. It's, um, it's hard to believe they talked to anybody or consulted with anybody. Uh, that does seem surprising given that your organization is, is quite large and, and has grown quite a lot in the last few years. So I, I would think that you would be surprised that if they're saying they've talked to these organizations and nonprofits and charities that, that you didn't hear from them. Yeah, I'm, I'm also surprised, um, and I have reached out to um, the VPD to offer to participate. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it is, it's curious to me. Um, I, all of the nonprofits um, mentioned in the report, I think there's three that have been singled out. Um, we've all grown a great deal in the last number of months. And, you know, it, it, one of the numbers they use for Atira is that we operate 800 um, units of housing. Well, that's our women-only housing. We actually have 2,472, and anybody who went on our website would be able to to know that. So, so it just is curious. The the report seems to imply that there are there is a lot of money, billions of dollars, in fact, that are funneling into the downtown east side every year, and that you can walk around that neighborhood and you can see that things are not better. In fact, I think most people would go into that neighborhood and say it, it appears that things are much much worse. Uh, there's an implication there that the money is then not going to those who need it the most; that it's going to salaries, it's going to staff at these various uh, nonprofits and charities mm-hmm. that it that it's being dispersed that way uh, how do you respond to that uh, well I mean 
we, we could all advocate for policy change. I, see, I think some of the things that would make a huge impact uh, or a huge positive impact on neighborhoods like the downtown east side, not only the downtown east sides, are things like a guaranteed annual income, um, an end to prohibition, um, uh, more and better housing. And those are policy choices that are being made. So to sort of lay, at the, lay that at the foot of agencies that don't have control, I don't I don't make the policy choices. I don't think that Rain City or PHS does. Um, we have all talked about um, many times and been consulted on what we think could change the situation in the downtown east side. Um, so, so I don't think that's news either. Uh, and do, I know you said that they didn't consult with your organization, and, and I'm not sure. I, I listened to most of the news conference, but I may have missed if they did say exactly who was consulted with or, or that part of it. Uh, but again, questions being raised about money, about salaries. But I know, I mean, your organization, any organization that is a, a charity, anybody can go to the Canada Revenue Agency website to, and see how many yeah. employees are there, the, the, the salary ranges. I mean, I, I'm looking yeah. at, at your company right now. I, I see there are, are seven employees from eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, and you can go through that. So, so is that not when when they say there's a lack of transparency? It, it doesn't seem like there's a huge lack of transparency there. If somebody's looking for that information, no, there's there's uh, there's a lot of transparency, um, and I think too that even going to uh, nonprofit websites. So, so for example, one of the things that. Um, that I didn't see noted. And keep in mind, I haven't seen the full report yet. I still only have the the six pages that I was originally provided. But anybody could go to the website, our website, and figure out that about 30% of our portfolio is operated outside of the downtown east side. Um, I know PHS and Rain City both operate um, buildings outside of the downtown east side and outside of Vancouver. Um, so all of that is is very transparent. We post our financial statements on our website. You can go to our website, see our financial statements. So, um, so lack of transparency is another curious um, thing to go after. Uh, the police chief said that this report isn't about more money for the police department, but instead is about the situation specifically or, or really on the downtown east side. And again, a lack of coordination. And he suggested that that instead of all of the groups, yours included, in this uh, working out of these silos, there should be perhaps one uh, overreaching organization or, or kind of one group that is seeing everything and in charge of everything. Do you think that that would make things better? Better as far as then everybody would know exactly what everybody's doing? I don't know how we can make a significant positive impact in a neighborhood like the downtown east side without making different policy choices. So um, unless we change some of the things that uh, drive the current situation in the downtown east side, like prohibition, like poverty, like a lack of um, adequate, safe, affordable housing, um, no, no oversight group is going to have a po- have a significant impact on anything. If that was to happen, though, would that not put agencies such as yours and those other agencies that are getting millions and millions of dollars? Would it not put those agencies out of work? Well, that's the point of nonprofits, though. So we're a women's anti-violence organization, and and the whole reason for our existence is not to not to have to be around forever. Right? I, don't, I, I would rather see a tear disappear than women continue to experience violence and being murdered. So, so that's okay. Um, if we can solve these problems in a way that works and we don't need nonprofits, that's, that's, that's all good.
Uh, right. And and I, I get what you're saying. And I guess the, the more cynical side of that and, and what's kind of been suggested before, and I think is kind of being suggested in this report, is that there isn't really the will for that to happen because in doing so, the livelihoods and people who have made a lot of money making six-figure salaries doing this would then be out of work. But presumably, you know, there'd be other work. Things changed. I mean, we all want the world to be a better place. So I don't know that there's anybody doing this work right now who hopes that people continue to live in poverty, who hopes that people continue to die um, due to failed drug policy. I don't know one person I've ever met who's thinking, geez, I hope more people die so that I can continue to have a salary. Um, that's, that's just false. It makes no sense. All right. Janice Abbott, we're right out of time, but I appreciate so much you making the time for us today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Joe. It is Wednesday afternoon, and on Wednesdays at this time, we check in with Claire Newell to find out what's happening in the travel world. Claire, good afternoon to you. Oh, good afternoon, Jill, and thanks for having me. Always great to talk travel news. We've got some great stories to get to, but let's first talk about uh, some issues uh, when we're looking at uh, Sunwing and more recently WestJet. Yeah, so it's been a tough go for some of the Canadian airlines. Um, The first happened uh, last week with Sunwing, a cyber attack. It was actually on Boeing behind the scenes, but it caused some cancellations and delays And then over the weekend, WestJet, and um, pretty nasty. It was a system outage, and just Sunday alone, there were 200 cancellations and significant delays. And it's, you know, into this week, it's it's still affecting flights. So just a reminder to people, check your flight status. And, you know, another thing, Jill, is I was talking to my husband about this whole situation. He goes, well, how can, what do you do? Like, what happens if you actually... Uh, or on one of those flights and you've got a connection and you're continuing on to say a cruise or a tour or something like, or you're going to something super important, like a convention that you've got to get to. And one of the things that I, I did say to him is, well, we're lucky because we have a, an annual travel insurance policy that kind of covers us for everything, including the kitchen sink. And my husband and I probably over insure as far as emergency medical because, because we have it through work. We have it through our credit card. Sometimes I do, I do this because um, the work policy may not cover everything we need it to. And our visa, sometimes we pay for things on um, points, like by using rewards, whether it's for hotels or whether it's for our airline ticket. So we're not actually using the credit card for the travel purchase. And that means it wouldn't be covered. And so the trip policy that we have, the travel policy that covers Oh, it's a family plan, so it covers my husband and I and our two kids. And yes, they're grown kids, but they're still covered under this policy. Um, it has something called trip uh, cancellation and interruption. It's that interruption word that's so important. Because of a situation like this, I said, you know what, honey, if your flight was on WestJet and it was canceled, you could have booked on Air Canada and it would have been covered for you. Mm, interesting. To get, to get, yeah, so there, there are ways around this type of a thing, but, you know, it's also a reminder, you know, we're so reliant on technology. And when there's system outages, we all hate it when our, our Wi-Fi goes out 
or our self-service. Remember what what happened over the summer? Um, we're so reliant on it. And with travel, it is no different. And the fact that there were two, both Sunwing and WestJet, in the same week just shows you how dependent and how kind of catastrophic it is and the domino effect for all the cancellations and delays. Right. And like you said, and like the airlines are saying, it's not like they get things back up and running and it's all smooth again, that this will be days. There's still going to be some follow from this. Yeah, there is. So again, just check that flight status before you're heading to the airport. I always recommend you do that anyway. But in this type of case, when you hear uh, that your airline has a a system outage or a cyber attack or something, really, really important to make sure because it could be significantly delayed. All right. And uh, speaking of one of those as well, WestJet, uh, for people who want to know kind of the the carbon footprint of their flights, uh, they're uh, making a commitment when it comes to a sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah, I love this story. You know, one bad news story, but a good one for WestJet. They announced a three-month commitment to operate all flights between San Francisco and Calgary with sustainable aviation fuel. And um, the immediate effect of that is that during that three months, um, it will reduce greenhouse gas gas emissions on these routes by 186 tons. And they've, you know, as a company, WestJet is committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. And I know that sounds like a long way off. um, But the, you know, the ball is starting to roll as far as them starting to use this type of fuel more and more. And it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's a start, which I'm really pleased to see. Yeah, definitely. And and people paying much more attention to that now as well. Um, let's talk a bit security line. We've talked about Vancouver and ways to make it faster and some more airports are doing that now as well. Yeah, interesting, because Vancouver was the first to roll out um, the Security Line Express tool. And uh, you and I talked about this weeks ago, and it's now actually being rolled out at five of the large airports across the country. So in addition to Vancouver, two more on the West Coast, both Calgary and Edmonton, and then Montreal and Toronto out east. And they're all going to implement this these um, security line express tools you can find them on the websites of the airports and what this does is that appointments can be scheduled online in advance or even if you get to the airport early enough and passengers book their spot in central security up to 72 hours before their departure i say take advantage of that like i said you can do it up to an hour and 15 minutes before your scheduled flights But once you've done that, passengers traveling with any airline will have access to this program free of charge, bring up to 10 guests, and you basically show the QR code and go through faster. So there will be two lineups, one for people who have this and one for the people who haven't used it. Yeah, anything to speed that up, I think, is always very much appreciated. Uh, We're also (laughs) talking uh, cruises and cruise lines uh, for people that are looking to do that. Some updates when it comes to the health and safety policies. Yeah, um, this is and this is with two of the kind of the major family type cruises um, in updates on November 2nd and November 3rd. Disney Cruise Line and Royal Caribbean International have revised their health and safety policy. So first, it was November 2nd with Disney. They announced that for sailings from the U.S. beginning on or after November 14th, guests are no longer required to be tested for COVID-19 regardless of their vaccination status. Um, full vaccination is not required. It is, however, highly recommended. And I think every every carrier, every cruise line, every everything is actually always putting that in, that it's not required potentially, 
but it is highly recommended. So Royal Caribbean, um, again, vaccination is no longer required for Canada and Alaska sailing. So that's new. And that's effective November 3rd. Some vaccination restrictions do remain for certain destinations. Guests ages 12 and older must be fully vaccinated in order to sail from Australia and Singapore. You know, they've been much slower to open up there. And additionally, guests ages five and older must be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to sail transatlantic sailings from Europe if you, you know, you're planning to do that. These policies, though, Jill, I guess at the bottom line is you really do need to check uh, with the cruise line that you're going with what their policies are, and they are ever-changing, just like everything uh, with respect to COVID-19 uh, with, with the travel industry. It's, just, it's, you know, it's ever-changing, so really stay on top of that. And again, that's not just for cruise lines, but for airlines as well. All right. Yeah, very good. Uh, Keep up to date. Uh, You never know when things are going to change there. Um, There's also, this is an interesting one, a Canadian airport that's using artificial intelligence. And this is uh, making the skies safer, detecting things that should not be in luggage or on planes. I'm a huge fan of this. And I I hope that this kind of rolls out right across the country. But Toronto became the first airport in Canada to test an artificial intelligence system that actually works to detect dangerous weapons. But it also can find those 3D printed guns and pipe bombs. Um, And testing began on November the 1st. The the actual system is called Hexwave, and it will detect non-metal weapons like those 3D printed guns as people pass through the device. So, but unlike metal detectors, this hex wave can identify those plastic weapons and plastic component parts. So the airport's going to operate these walk-through security detection portals in a, a number of areas. I thought one that was interesting is that one will be included at an entrance from the terminal parking garage. Hmm. So um hope this kind of rolls out. Anything to keep people safe in my books is a good plan. Yes, definitely, because uh, you're also uh, sharing the numbers that more and more people are are getting their passports and are getting back and traveling. Yeah, so many people are. um, And and the government is is really aware that things have gotten better. And that's a good news story because the chaos of basically June, July, August were, were just heinous. You know, we saw in media all the people lined up you know, for in some cases days, and and the the the, the weights were just awful on the phones in person. And anyway, Ottawa ha- is reporting that they are also going to be increasing staff in anticipation in a surge in demand as Canadians make travel plans for the holiday season. It will be a busy holiday season. We can already see that in in the bookings. And so in August and September of this year, they saw a record number of passports issued per month, and that's in. You know, in thanks part to more staff that they added, but also they implemented a lot of streamlined processes. So the passport center lineups are what I would say are manageable. Passports are now being delivered within what is kind of the service standards and kind of what we saw pre-pandemic. However, I guess, as you know, and, and I think this is very smart as the holiday season approaches, they're going to continue to increase the workforce capacity just to make sure that they can maintain those service standards. Nobody wants the bottleneck again at those passport um, centers. And one other thing, if you are planning to call, the government is saying that the average call center wait time for passport services in October, because that's the most recent numbers we have, was 18 minutes. It was like hours in some cases. 
over the summer months. So yeah. it's gotten a lot better. <laughs> well, that is some uh, good news for sure. Um, let's do one more before uh, we get to some deals. What else are we talking about today? Well, one thing that I thought was a bit interesting, I wonder if other low-cost carriers are going to do this. We've heard of some of the airlines um, offering free Wi-Fi in certain classes of service. People are being enticed to go to different airlines. And the uh, discount carrier Spirit Airlines in the U.S., um, they're making headway into Canada as well, but they're introducing wider, comfier seats. So that headline, I'm like, oh, what is that all about? Um, so this will be on new deliveries as of, um, the, of the starting in late September for all of their Airbus A320 planes that are coming. They're expected to take 30, 30, 33 of those aircraft in 2023. Not a big difference, though. But I can tell you, every like every bit helps. Mm. It's going to be half an inch of additional wind <laughs> compared to. I know, I know you're giggling about that, but um, this is they, no airlines really ever increase this, the width in economy. We just never hear it. So yeah. this is so new to me. Um, but it will bring window and aisle seats to 17 and a half inches. But middle seats, it's going to bring it to 18 and a half inches. And remember my, my rule? Yes. Um, not just my rule. It's kind of the rule. The middle person, they get both armrests. Yes, they do. And if you're on the, yeah, the window, you get the one beside the window. If you're at the aisle, you get the one beside the aisle. But that poor person in that middle seat. Anyway, um, this is this is good news. I think everyone likes a little more room. It's all I hear about, you know, people complaining about small airline seats. They've gotten smaller over the years that I've been in the industry. And this, I just kind of caught me by surprise, I have to admit, Jill. Well, just before the break, we were chatting with Claire Newell, the founder and president of Travel Best Bets. We chat with Claire every Wednesday. I mentioned we were gonna, going to get people traveling. And Claire, what deals do you have for us today? Yeah, well, I've got um, Honolulu. I've, this is a teeny little window in January, so after the holiday rush, but January 20th to 26th, I found a package that includes the airfare to Honolulu and seven nights hotel Eight ninety nine, taxes of four seventeen, and then lots of people wanting those all inclusive beach destinations in Mexico and the Caribbean, and I found one to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Only two dates still left available. We had a kind of a range of dates. Most of them are gone. They've been selling out really, really quickly with the rain and the kind of the cool weather we're getting now. Cool, I should say cold. <laughs> anyway, December the fourth or the 11th air and seven nights in a four and a half star gorgeous beachfront all-inclusive resort 935 taxes of 490 and the next one is um, one that you know sometimes booking well in advance and especially post-pandemic given the the sheer demand saves you money and that is kind of an overarching rule right now but I found this deal that it's um, a getaway to Portugal so a Part of the stay is in Lisbon and part in the Algarve, which is um, in southern Portugal. And it's April the 12th, so nice spring dates, right through, though, until June 13th. So that's a key. Of course, kids get out of school pretty close to then. So, But that window, April 12th to June 13th, the airfare, four nights hotel in Lisbon, four nights hotel in the Algarve, train between those cities, three sightseeing tours. They're optional. I would totally do them. They're worth it. Breakfast every day, two wine tastings and transfers. This is the flight included, twelve ninety nine. Hmm. Taxes of seven sixty nine. That is such a great deal. 
Um, and then the last one I've got, because uh, whenever kids are out of school, it's always so, so busy. People looking, trying to squeeze in a winter break. There's not lots of space available. It's, there's some. But looking ahead to spring break, this is a seven-night spring break Mexican Riviera cruise. It's leaving March the 18th. It is a seven-night cruise sailing round trip from San Diego. Air is not included. You'd, we'd have to add air to this. But $590, taxes of 255 And if you book it by November 15th, you can get up to a $300 U.S. dollar onboard credit. Isn't that almost $500 Canadian? (laughs) (laughs) Almost, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) a big exaggeration. But um, yeah, those are some, some deals that are in the marketplace. So, um, you know, people are definitely traveling, Jill. Claire, thank you so much. As always, great to chat with you. Thanks, Jill. Well, we have talked a lot about Chinatown on this program and some of the businesses that continually get hit with graffiti, with property damage, the issues in that community. And there is a motion that is coming to Vancouver City Council. And as we know, there is a new mayor and a new council. There is a motion that aims to help out Chinatown if it is approved. And joining us to talk more about this motion is Sarah Kirby-Young, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor behind this motion. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. This is a motion that comes in part from the visit to San Francisco, that fact-finding mission that took place. What are you suggesting or what is included in this as far as some solutions or ways to help out what is happening in Chinatown? So the motion is called Urgent Measures to Uplift Vancouver's Chinatown. It is going to be on this brand-new council's first full council meeting agenda next week. Um, I thought it was really important that we send that signal to Chinatown that um, uh, it's a priority for all of this council. Um, it, the solutions really came forward from community here in Vancouver, but I think that they were validated um, by the trip that community leaders made along with um, a trip supported by the Vancouver Police Foundation to San Francisco, who had gone through similar challenges with respect to crime, vandalism, graffiti, and a general degradation of their Chinatown. And through working together, Um, They really saw some success in turning that trend around. Um, And some of the solutions include really a very focused and robust effort from uh, streets and engineering um, in terms of um, street uh, sidewalk cleaning, alley cleaning, litter and needle pickup, um, continuing to push on graffiti removal strategies. I think in San Francisco they had a hotline that merchants in Chinatown could call um, in order to get quick access and response there, um, recognizing it was an area that um, was particularly targeted and hard hit. Um, and then in addition to that, working with community groups um, in terms of community storage for cleanup, um, sometimes the community policing centers uh, are a great uh, source for that for volunteers for making some of those programs happen. Um, and also the positive placemaking opportunities around new murals and local artwork that can really reflect community um, and create a nice vibrant area that people want to come down to visit and feel comfortable going down to visit. So some of those things are are already being done, aren't they, as far as, uh, I know, community has come together and and when you talk about murals painted over where there's been graffiti or trying to put up more beautiful artwork and trying to, to discourage that kind of vandalism. Yeah, we've certainly seen, I think, um, really, and I give huge kudos to the community um, initiative coming from community. And what we're really talking about here is scaling up and coordination. And I think it's the city stepping up as well in a bigger way. Um, Through the last council, I'll be honest, it felt like we were fighting for resources bit by bit. Um, And what we really need is a robust effort. It's that sort of like morning 
um, you know, street flushing or cleaning. Um, and it, again, it's that support in terms of moving away. And we're starting to now from punitive fines for businesses that were hit multiple times with graffiti to actually saying, how can we help and getting down there to help them um, get some of that graffiti removed? Because, you know, these folks are just beleaguered. Um, they're being hit consistently. So I think it's really about coordination. And I think it's about the city scaling up its efforts um, and working with community on some of those positive initiatives that have started to build. So one of the recommendations on that note is uh, saying that report back uh, to, on potential bylaw changes to remove or waive those fines uh, to the property owners and businesses that are repeat victims of nuisance and damaging graffiti. So would that only be, though, waived or removed fines for businesses in Chinatown? Well, it's a great question. I think what we're trying to do here, honestly, is triage um, and deal with the areas that are hardest hit. I certainly think that any learnings we have here uh, could definitely apply to other areas and other neighborhoods. Um, But we do know that, you know, Chinatown, um, I think, you know, in its inception is actually older um, than the history of the incorporation of the city of Vancouver. Um, And I think it's really a sort of a, a, a flag for if we let our city degrade and we lose Chinatown. Um, we see that taking hold across the rest of the city. So I think this motion really acknowledges that. Um, if there's some good learnings that we can apply to other areas and other neighborhoods, that would be a great outcome. Um, we have, for example, expanded graffiti grants that we have funneled through the BIAs um, to support a number of neighborhoods. And some of those grants have been awarded proportionally to some of the harder hit areas. So, you know, downtown south, for example, um, you see some more into Mount Pleasant. There's some areas that are obviously harder hit than others. Right. I'm just thinking that if there's a business, say, in downtown or any neighborhood, really, that is being repeatedly hit and we've seen the boarded up windows and we see the graffiti that shows that. But if there's a business outside of Chinatown that for some reason is fined because they didn't remove the graffiti fast enough, they, they might not be all that pleased that they're getting a fine, whereas the businesses that happen to be in another neighborhood aren't. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the pieces in this motion um, does ask staff to report back on potential bylaw changes. Um, uh, that so that we're not imposing those fines necessarily on those folks that are hit. And it doesn't distinguish. Um, bylaws don't distinguish across neighborhoods. Um, that's a bylaw that would apply to the city as a whole. Uh, it also talks about establishing a satellite city office in Chinatown, somewhere that uh, mayor and council could work from if they wanted to or to meet with community members. Uh, what would that look like as far as size and scope and, and how often would, would you like to see or would this potentially see city staff or city uh, councillors and, and potentially even the mayor working out of Chinatown? Yeah, this is one of the things I'm really excited about. I'm down in Chinatown um, weekly, um, anyway, but this is a campaign commitment that we made to set up a, an office in Chinatown so that our counselors could have somewhere uh, to work from regularly. Um, I think there's a desire for us to be down there on a weekly basis. Um, we've got, you know, obviously a number of counselors that were elected, um, and it would provide a space to meet with community and have some of those conversations um, in the heart of the neighborhood and see what's happening on a regular basis. So um, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a modest, uh, small space. Um, I think we're going to be able to set something up very quickly. Um, But it's really designed to just be a hub so that um, council can connect with community and community can connect with council. Would there also be an opportunity to increase, say, community police offices? And, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot today about the report that is out. And we heard from the chief of the Vancouver police earlier. Uh, Certainly there have been a lot of questions about that. Uh, That's more looking at the downtown east side, but that's very close to, to Chinatown and that neighborhood as well. Uh, would this suggest or would this be looking also at increasing, say, police presence? Well, um, we're going to have 
conversations there's another motion on the council agenda um, that supports the promise we made with respect to hiring an additional 100 mental health nurses and 100 police officers in conjunction and obviously some of those resources um, once they come on board will be deployed um, with respect to a CPC our community policing center in Chinatown um, it was relocated uh, a bit more than a year ago now um, to a storefront level near the Chinese cultural center and that hub there to provide that street level presence and I know they're starting to ramp up their programs including cleanups and I do think there's a lot more um, that can be leveraged through that office uh, in delivering that um, in terms of gaps across the rest of the city we know that Mount Pleasant um, definitely has been growing as well um, and we could certainly see value in having a community policing center there that's something that we've also been advocating for. All right. Uh, are you able to talk at all about the, the what's happening with this police report and a lot of the questions about this $5 billion figure and people kind of skeptical of where that came from and kind of the motivation of this report coming out now? I have not been privy to this report. Um, it wasn't uh, shared with mayor and council, and um, so I can't comment on the specifics. I think, like everybody, um, I'm going to be looking at it with a critical eye with respect to what the methodology is in the quantification of that, um, and those numbers need to have some validity, I think, um, in terms of having some good dialogue around what that looks like. I will say that I think um, needing to have conversations around ensuring investments are outcome-based is really important because when you have six people a day that are overdosing um, and you have a number of people that, you know, we're sustaining people but we're not necessarily getting them on a path to better, that's the conversation I think we need to have, but I can't comment on the specifics of the report because it wasn't provided to me. All right, Councillor, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, though, for coming on the program. Great to have you on the show today. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Jill.